Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rest is History World Cup special. Um, we're going through all the various countries that are competing in this year's World Cup. And a couple of days ago, um, I very much focused on Dido, the legendary founder of the city of Carthage. And Dominic, today you have someone with the name Gannibal, which is, I gather, the Russian, the, the way the Russians pronounce Hannibal, the great military hero, conqueror. Uh, of the Carthaginians. Um, but this person is, uh, he's not a Carthaginian, is he? He is from today's country, which is Cameroon. He is from Cameroon. So I don't know or how is he? au fait you or are. Or is he? Well, that's well, also, well yeah, we should come to this. How au fait are you with Cameroonian history generally, Tom? Would you say? <laughs> not, probably not as au fait as I could be. Well, I think it's fair to say that a lot of Cameroonian history is um, terra incognita for um for many British and indeed English speaking listeners. So, I mean, Cameroon historically was never obviously a single nation state. It was a place of competing kingdoms and chieftains. Do you know where the name Cameroon comes from? I didn't know this actually until I looked it up. No, it comes from our friends, the Portuguese. I um, guess probably most. Yes, that, that would make sense. So there's I a think the only the- thing I know about, the, about Cameroon is Roger Miller. <laughs> right, 1990. Yeah, 19, yeah, 1990. We uh, got uh, the quarterfinals, I think, in the World Cup. They so, did get to the quarterfinals yeah. and lost to uh, Gary Lineker's England. I don't um, really know anything else beyond that. So, so I'm uh, looking forward to being a, educated. There's a river called the Wuri, and uh, the Portuguese, when they sailed up that in the 16th century, it was full of shrimps, and they called it the Rio dos Camarões. Uh, okay. Uh, and that right. became Cameroon. So it could, have, it could have been Langostino or something if the Spanish had got there. Yes, very good. <laughs> very good. Well, anyway, uh, what's now Cameroon was colonized by the Germans and then it was divided up between um, Britain and France at the end of the First World War and then obviously became independent. But although this is a podcast about the history of Cameroon and about one of Cameroon's most famous um, sons, we're not going to start in Cameroon, Tom. We're going to start somewhere completely unexpected and completely different. So, 
we're going to start on a place called the Black River in St. Petersburg, oh. uh, then the capital of Russia. We're going to start in February 1837. So there are two men on the bank of this river. And one of them is a, a French officer and sort of man about town and Lothario called Georges Charles Dantes, very sort of three musketeers-ish character. And the other is Russia's most beloved poet, Alexander Pushkin. So the man who is seen by many people as the most beautiful of all Russian writers, the man who kind of invented the Russian literary language, um, an icon of Russia. And they are going, they are fighting a duel. There's been, they've been leading up to this for weeks. There's been a lot of hostility between them, sort of romantic hostility and so on to do with um, jealousy and so on, which I won't go into. Uh, so it's a duel to the death. Dantes fires first, and he hits Pushkin in the stomach, and Pushkin falls, and he manages to rise and shoot back at Dantes, but he only lightly wounds him, and then he falls back, and Pushkin is mortally wounded, and he dies. So this is the end of Russia's greatest poet. Now, there's great mourning for Pushkin. And later that year, a magazine or newspaper that he founded, a journal that he founded called Sovremenik, publishes one of Pushkin's unfinished works. And this is a novel, not a poem, and it's called The Moor of Peter the Great. And Pushkin had worked on it 10 years or so before. And it's the story of this hero, Ibrahim, the Moor, who comes from somewhere in Africa, we don't really know where, and he comes to St. Petersburg and uh, to Paris. He spends time in Paris. He has a love affair with a French countess. Um, he eventually ends up back in St. Petersburg. There's a ball at the Winter Palace. There are dinners of noblemen. It's very kind of war and peace. Pushkin didn't finish it, and it's published. But it means an awful lot to Pushkin because actually this is a portrait of his great-grandfather, the Moor of St. Petersburg. And this is what's going to link it back to Cameroon because Pushkin's great-grandfather was an African who had come to St. Petersburg at the beginning of the 18th century. And this mattered enormously to Pushkin. He wasn't embarrassed by it at all. He would often draw self-portraits of himself with exaggerated kind of at what he saw as African features. He had an inkwell on his desk in the shape of an African page boy. In his most famous poem, Evgeny Onegin, there is a line where the narrator imagines himself under the sky of my Africa, sighing for gloomy Russia. So to Pushkin himself, his African ancestry was a sort of, it was a claim to a kind of romanticism. You know, it gave him an exoticism that nobody else in, in Russia had. And the man from whom uh, Pushkin traced his ancestry was a man called Avram Petrovich Gannibal. So, Hannibal. Yeah. Hannibal. So, exactly. Dominic, presumably, yes. not originally his name. Not a, I mean, no, not originally his name. We shall come to how he got his name. Now, Avram, but, but basically Ibrahim. Abraham. Uh, so that's so that's the the link with the the more in the story. Now, Pushkin, what did he think about this great grandfather? He did not think he came from Cameroon. He actually thought that he came from Abyssinia, from Ethiopia, and lots of Russians believed this at the time. There had been this character called Gannibal who had come from Abyssinia, and this seems almost certainly wrong. So, if Ethiopia is a Christian country, yes. So, is that a 
a part of, but Ibrahim is obviously the, the Muslim name. Of course. For so why do they think he might come from Ethiopia? Because if you're Russian and your Orthodox Christianity means a lot to you, but also if you're aspiring to join the nobility and to make your way up in society, it's important to you to have an ancestor who has come from the preeminent Christian kingdom, this mysterious, exotic Christian land called Abyssinia. That's Prester why. John. Exactly. The land of Prester John. Now, many years later, we'll get into Gannibal's story in a, in a second. Many years later, another great Russian writer, Vladimir Nabokov, he was really the first to say, I don't think Gannibal did come from Ethiopia at all. And he thought Gannibal might have come from uh, Cameroon, from the sort of northeastern fringes of Cameroon. Uh, a Beninese historian called Judone Grimanku studied the pattern of the slave trade. Now, you'll see in a second why that's important. And he also said, I think Cameroon is the most likely place. And finally, there was a British writer about 15 years ago called Hugh Barnes, who also studied Gannibal. They found that Pushkin's great-grandfather had applied at one point for a coat of arms from the, um, from the Tsarina. And that Gannibal had asked for a particular mysterious word, Tom, to be put on the coat of arms. And that word was F-U-M-M-O. And in the local Kotoko language of that part of Cameroon, that word means homeland. So Goodness. Goodness. Well, Dominic, just before you move on to that, could I just ask, is, so is he, do, do, does Cameroon today claim him? Is he? He's not as big a figure in Cameroon, I think, as he is as in, he's Russia. in Russia. Interesting, interestingly, um, but yes, Cameroon does claim him. Actually, funny enough, Ethiopia and Eritrea sort of squabbled over who who um, Yannibal belonged to, and the truth is, he didn't belong to either. He belonged to Cameroon. So there's a little bit of a sort of African tug of war, but I think it matters more to Russians than it does to anybody else. So let's start uh, by looking at um, Gannibal, what we know of Gannibal's life. So he probably is born Ibrahim, probably, and he grows up south of Lake Chad in equatorial Africa in what's now Cameroon. And what seems likely is that he was the son of a chief. I mean, that might have been self-publicity. It might have been you know, making a romantic story for himself, a chief with um, more than a dozen children. And in about 1703, when uh, young Ibrahim was six, probably he was kidnapped by slavers. Because there's a lot of a lot of slaving going on from the Arab world, isn't there? Oh, uh, so the slaving—it's not just—it's not just European. The the slave trade from Central Africa and East Africa up to the Mediterranean or or into the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean is colossal in the early 18th century and the late 17th century. So, I mean, in total, over the centuries, there are millions of people being enslaved and shipped across the sea. And he is one of them. And roughly 1703, 1704, um, let's call him Avram, he ends up in Constantinople. So he's sold into slavery and he ends up at the court of the Ottoman Emperor, Sultan Ahmed III. And he's there, we think, for about a year. Okay, so another question, Dominic. Another question. Yes. So yes. if there are millions and millions of slaves going from yes. Africa up to the Middle East, to, to end up not just in Constantinople, but in the, the Sultan's palace, I mean, you have to, what is it about him that gets him there? Because I mean, that's it's a very kind of high end destination, isn't it? He's a page boy, but I think there would have been many such slaves, Tom. I don't think he's an unusual figure. By so any just means. luck, basically. I or? think it's pure luck. Right. Because, and, it's, and it's good luck for him, as it will turn out, because his prominence there means that he catches the eye of visiting 
ambassadors and diplomats and so on. And one of these people is a man called Count Sava Lukic Vladislavich Raguzinski. <laughs> and this man, great name, crazy name, crazy guy. Uh, he was a fur merchant and adventurer who had been hanging around with Peter the Great a couple of years earlier. <laughs> and is he and a massive lad like Peter the Great was? I think of course, he is. Peter, Peter great, the Great, a huge yeah, party animal. appeared in, in the rest of his history, smashing up John Evelyn's house in Deptford, didn't he? Yes, that he right? did. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. And going on wheelbarrow races around his garden. Exactly. Peter the Great is now the Tsar of, uh, Tsar of Russia. Um, and uh, he said he, he, Peter the Great collects curiosities, like a lot of European monarchs. At the turn of the 18th century, he has a cabinet of curiosities. Well, so, I've seen it. Have you? Yeah, it's but in not St. with the living specimens in it. Though, no, not I with the living specimens, but um, no, it's uh, it's it's in St. Petersburg, opposite the Hermitage. Right, and it's very very is it good. Yeah, but <laughs> creepy. Creepy. I was going to say, is it very creepy? very well, he creepy? A, he apparently had. He, I mean, we know that Peter the Great was a great fan of dwarves and throwing yes. dwarves around at so banquets and things. It's a kind of two-headed dwarves preserved in formaldehyde. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of that. He supposedly um, had a baby with two heads and yeah. a lamb with eight legs. Exactly. Um, they, they, they are still there, as I remember. So what Peter the Great says to uh, Count Sava, his pal, is, who he has appointed ambassador to the sublime port. ambassador to the sublime port in uh, Constantinople, exactly, to the Sultan. Peter the Great says, I would like a black child to be part of my cabinet of curiosities. Procure me a black boy. And... Um, this guy, he procures our friend, the future Gannibal, who is only seven. He basically buy. We don't know whether he buys him, whether he does a deal with the Sultan. It's this is a mystery. So much of this story, Tom, is a bit of a mystery. Um, but he's brought back through the auspices of the Russian diplomatic service to St. Petersburg. Interestingly, one of the people whose path he crosses, who is sort of one of the orchestrators of this mission, is a man called. Piotr Andreevich Tolstoy, the great-grandfather oh, of Tolstoy. So there's not goodness, just Pushkin, yeah. there is Tolstoy in this story. Is there a Dostoevsky who pops up? There's no Dostoevsky. Oh, okay. There's no Dostoevsky. Um, I'm sorry to disappoint you. So Gannibal, and we'll call him Gannibal, uh, he arrives in St. Petersburg, and he's presented to Peter the Great as a gift. Peter the Great takes a great shine to him. A year later, he has him baptized in Vilnius, which is then part of the Russian Empire. And Peter the Great himself serves as the boy's godfather, interestingly. So what is Peter the Great up to here? Well, I think what he's trying to do is he, he, he sees himself as a great collector, as a man who has all sorts of curiosities. And Gannibal is one of the curiosities, but he also wants to go further. Peter the Great, Tom, is a great modernizer, as we know. Yes, he's a, a great figure of the Enlightenment, isn't it? A figure of the Enlightenment. Yeah. And it's very important to him that he has what, what he sees as this sort of exotic, strange, non-Christian boy, and he is going to, in inverted commas, civilize and modernize him. So he starts, he has Gannibal taught, little boy taught mathematics and engineering, and the boy proves a whiz at it, an absolute whiz. He's got a real appetite for him. So he accompanies Peter the Great when he travels. They, they get to... Um, Peter the Great is a great traveler. He goes to the Netherlands. He goes to Paris. And in, they're in Paris in 1717. So when the boy is, you know, in his late teens. And Peter the Great says, listen, you're tremendously good at maths and engineering. Why don't you stay here in France and study science? So the boy does. He speaks several languages. He's learned geometry. He's learned all these things. He joins the French army. 
1720, he enters the French Artillery Academy. So a bit of a sort of hint of Bonaparte here, Tom. Yes, yeah. And um, he's lucky because it, if he wants to see action, because at precisely this point, a war breaks out called the War of the Quadruple Alliance, almost completely forgotten now, between um, France, Britain, the Holy Roman Empire, and the Dutch Republic on one hand, and the Spanish on the other. And off he goes, this, this young man as he now is, uh, this young Cameroonian man. He goes off to the Pyrenees where he commands an artillery unit. He helps to capture several Spanish towns in the Basque country, but he's a great inventor and a tinkerer, and he's invented a cannon of his own design, which he fires, and it, it actually, as is the want with a lot of, as is the, um, as often happens with a lot of 18th century cannons, it, it, it fires, but unfortunately in the wrong direction, and it basically almost blows his own head off, and is ca- suffers a bad head injury and is captured by the Spanish. So he ends up in Spain for two years in a Spanish prison, then he's released and he comes back to Paris. And there he's a tremendous celebrity. So, Dominic, you know, com- d- yes. so this is early 18th century. Yes. And the early 18th century is where the slave trade is really kicking in in the Atlantic yes. world. Yeah. But, and it's often said that Europe is a hotbed of racism. But this would, his career would seem to uh, suggest Absolutely, otherwise. Yes. It, I mean, well, everyone knows that he's Peter the Great's pal, you see. And the Peter the Great is very fond of him, and he has the sort of Tsar's uh, approval. But also, I think it's fair to say he's a novelty, but people certainly don't take against him. So when he goes back to Paris, the people in Paris, they, they call, they are the people who call him Hannibal. Hannibal because um, of his yeah, the, exploits in Spain. and yeah. his, his exploits in Spain and because of the whole Carthaginian-African link, they call him Hannibal. Now, the Russians pronounce that Hannibal, <laughs> hence that's why he's called Gannibal, as it were. But... He mixes in kind of enlightened circles in Paris. Voltaire is said to have called him the dark star of the Russian Enlightenment. I mean, this may be a bit apocryphal. It's repeated by almost every single story about Hannibal. But uh, it's let's 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 imagine yeah, that Voltaire yeah. really did say it. Why not? I mean, because Voltaire was quite racist towards Africans. So good to see him. Not but he was nice about there. he was nice about yeah. Hannibal. Yeah. yeah. And in 1723, he goes back to Russia as a bit of a celebrity. And Tom, I think we should take a break here. And then we should pick up this incredible story of this Cameroonian boy and follow his trajectory to a general and a nobleman in the Russian Empire after the break. Fantastic. Can't wait. See you back in a few minutes. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage 
all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use gift mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History, and uh, courtesy of Dominic, we are midway through the remarkable story of the man I think it would be no exaggeration to say is probably the most famous person to have come from Cameroon in the 18th century. Uh, <laughs> if, if, if there are specialists in Cameroonian history who could put us right on that, let us know. But uh, I suspect he probably is. Certainly the most famous Cameroonian to have become a general in Russia in the 18th century. <laughs> so, Dominic, I think that's unquestionably <laughs> true. Yeah. So, so, so he's, he's um, he, he, th- this young Cameroonian boy who a slave in Constantinople, been given as a page boy to Peter the Great. He's become uh, an artillery per- uh, expert in artillery, s- studied in Paris. He's now come back to Russia and you're going to take up the story. His comeback to Russia was a great star. Peter the Great is um, very impressed with him. You know, he's he's absolutely vindicated all Peter's sort of faith in him and whatnot. So he comes back. Uh, he's going to be a military engineer, and Peter appoints him tutor of mathematics to the Imperial Guard, which is you know an amazing yeah, I post. Thing, really. Yeah, um, yeah. But bad news for uh, for Mister um, Hannibal, because in 1725 Peter the Great dies. And his widow, Catherine, becomes Tsarina, Catherine I. But the big strong man is a guy called Prince Menshikov. And Prince Menshikov, it does not approve of Gannibal at all. He thinks he's vulgar. He's from the below. He's an ex-slave and he's a foreigner. And he's just a bad sort, you know, all things considered. Tom, you look to be as though you're gearing up to say something, are you? No, no. I was just thinking, what a, what a rotter. Yeah, good. Well, he is a rotter. Menshikov's an absolute rotter in this regard. Yeah. So in 1727, so two years after taking uh, Menshikov as, as sort of come in as the strong man, poor old Avram Petrovich Gannibal ends up in a sort of semi-exile kind of remote posting to Siberia and not just Siberia, but a place called Selenginsk, which is basically right next to the Chinese border. So about as far a long away. away from Cameroon, isn't it? I mean, that's really a hell of a way from Cameroon, Tom. Yeah. I, there's no disguising it. <laughs> he's, he's, you know, he's a well-travelled man. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, and there, they basically get him to to re- direct the construction of a big fortress to fend off any possible um, attacks from the Chinese. So Gannibal is there for two years, and after two years, good news. Prince Menshikov dies. Hooray. That's great news for Gannibal. Yeah. Because the Tsarina says, um, you're no longer kind of in exile. Uh, you can hang around in Siberia. It would be nice if you hung around in Siberia for a couple more years, do more building work, but I'll give you a title. We'll call you a master engineer now. So he does that. 
Um, and then he comes back to the West. Now, you know, it swings and roundabouts with Gannibal's life, really, Tom. In 1731, he marries, and he marries a Greek woman called Yevdokia Diopi. Um, now, that might sound, you know, it's great that he's got married. It's nice for him. But unfortunately, his wife absolutely detests him. So why does he marry? Uh, well, supposedly... Uh, it's hard to it's hard to find the truth of this. I mean, as again, as I said in the first half, a lot of it is very mysterious. It's hard to work out whether they they were ordered to um, by the court because it was important that they get married, or he he wanted to but she didn't, and the court kind of backed him and, and fought and and forced her to marry him. Basically, quite early on, within a matter of kind of months, Gannibal thinks that um, this this Greek lady is betraying him. And his suspicions are confirmed, Tom, when she has a child who turns out to be completely white, uh, which Gannibal sees as, yes, this is not the not the thing at all. And he has her arrested and she's sent to prison for 11 years for, um, well, for adultery. Harsh, is, but robust. It, yes, it's, it, yeah, I suppose that's a fair verdict. Now, in the meantime, he meets somebody else. He meets a kind of Baltic noblewoman called Christina Regina Seuerberg. He's got a kind of Scandinavian background and he falls completely in love with her and he marries her in 1736. Now there's so a slight, kind of bigamous. Yes. Or? There's a slight, there's a slight drawback here, which is that um, he's not divorced from Yevdokia who's in prison. Um, so the authorities make him pay a heavy fine as a punishment. <laughs> right. But he's quite perfectly happy to pay that because this is a splendid union. They have 10 children. Oh, and when his previous wife is released from prison, she's forced into a nunnery. Well, so, <laughs> I think there's a moral there for anyone it's, thinking of cheating on a Russian general. So, so of these, of these ten children, two of them are worth noting. So, one of them, the oldest one, is called Ivan, and uh, he becomes a naval officer. And would you believe, Tom, he is instrumental in founding the city of Kherson in southern Ukraine. Goodness. Very much in the news yes. at the moment because of the battle for Kherson between Ukraine and Russia. And he becomes a general-in-chief, um, Ivan, as, as his father goes on to do. And the other um, child worth noting is called Osip, and he has a daughter called Nadezhda, and she is the mother of Pushkin. So there's your link to Alexander Pushkin, the poet. Do you know um, some other famous descendants that he had? Uh, is this your fact that you warned me at the beginning of the podcast yes. you were going to bring out and you're yes. very pleased with yourself? <laughs> yes. I can't wait for it, Tom, because I don't can know I what it can is. Can I tell it to you? Okay. Yes. So uh, it's the children of um, the, uh, the the presenter of another history podcast who's been on our, he's been a guest on our show. Wonderful man. Is it Dan Snow? Yeah. Yeah. Who you called deranged because of his, uh, <laughs> that was his just on Stonehenge. That was just yeah. bands. Knockabout. No, so, da- so Dan, Dan's uh, wife, Edwina, yeah. is uh, the daughter of the Duke of Westminster, yeah. whose wife is descended from Gannibal. So Dan's, Dan's children are descended from, from Gannibal. From Gannibal. Yeah. So how is it that Dan Snow hasn't done that? We've beaten him to it. Well, I don't know. Maybe again. he has. Maybe he has. But I, I, um, I, I read this yesterday when I was Did talking you about it. Well, I just wanted to check that it wasn't a kind of internet 
you know. Yeah. And he said, no, he's terribly proud of it. Rightly so. I mean, Gannibal, as you absolutely said, yeah. by far the most famous Cameroonian to become a Russian 18th century general. <laughs> well, he's, he's, he's a very kind of interesting man, isn't he? Um, and I, I, I hope Dan, um, I hope Dan won't mind me reading his private message. So I, I asked, was, was it really true that Hedwina was descended from Gannibal? And he said, absolutely. And it is a source of extraordinary pride. Romanov, Pushkin, African, princely descent, big time. So, yeah, yeah, no, huge, huge I, cause of pride. I I, Tom, I actually wish I hadn't chosen it now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Dominic! <laughs> Nonsense. <laughs> anyway, listen, um, so things, uh, Gannibal's troubles are behind him. Uh, there's a new uh, Tsarina, Elizabeth I, as we know her in, in the English-speaking world. Um, she is a great Francophile, Tom, whereas the, the previous incumbent um, had been uh, Germanophiles. So, so she's a great Francophile, and therefore she's very impressed with Cannibal, with all his stuff in Paris and his service to the French army. So he now enters the court with full honours. He becomes a general. He is sent to the city of Rival, which we know now as Tallinn on the Baltic, as governor. He's the governor of Tallinn. He's the governor of Tallinn for the best part of a decade. And it's at this point that in 1742, he um, sends Elizabeth a letter basically petitioning, can he join the nobility and have a coat of arms? And he's designed his own crest. He wants a crest with an and elephant so this is, on it. And with the Cameroonian. So the, the elephant presumably word. is an allusion to Hannibal. Africa and Hannibal, exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and, this, and mysterious this, this mysterious word, word yeah. F-U-M-M-O. Now, there are two possible explanations for this word. So one of them is that it does mean, as I said in the first off, homeland in the Kotoko language from Cameroon. Uh, the other, rather disappointingly, um, <laughs> is that it actually stands for a Latin expression, fortuna vitam mea mutavit omnino, which means... Tom, fortune has changed my life entirely. Which is, would be a great motto for him. And so what's the consensus on that? Is there, no, is one, there knows. One? No, no one, one knows. No one knows. No one knows. No one knows. But what we do know is Elizabeth I, she does give him, she gives him an estate in a place called Mikolaevskoye in uh, northwestern Russia and hundreds of serfs. So he's a, he's a big magnate now. He's a big man. Um, he's made the chief military engineer of the entire Russian army in 1756. Then he's raised to the rank of general in 1759 and you know he's a he's he's an aging man now and eventually uh 1762 the elizabeth dies and um a friend of yours tom catherine the great mm -hmm. comes in as, as empress and Hannibal knows now that he's he's kind of past it and he's a, a symbol of the old regime so the last thing he does is he organizes a massive as the engineer he organizes a massive fireworks display for the new Tsarina outside the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg. And then he retires to his estate in Mikolaevskaya, where he dies in 1781 at the age, I think, probably of 85. And he has outlived eight Tsars and Tsarinas. An astonishing story. And he's an awfully long way from Cameroon. But actually, the story doesn't really end there because his legacy obviously lives on it lives on in pushkin um and pushkin's sort of pushkin's ideal that he has been descended from this sort of vision that he has that he's been descended by from an abyssinian prince because well, it inherently That's, makes him more interesting and poetic of course it makes him more interesting yeah and actually as the 18th, as the 19th century goes on you were talking about racism in the 18th century but as the 19th century goes on i think it becomes more and more important to russians that he is not a sort of 
black sub-Saharan African, but in fact a Christian Ethiopian. Right, yeah. Um, so, for example, a friend of Pushkin's says in the 1830s about Gannibal, there was nothing of the Negro in him. He was Abyssinian. He had regular features, a cruel but intelligent expression. I mean, that's just completely made up. There's no reason for him to, to know that. Um, they start to call him the Moor. And the sort of deliberate sort of Shakespearean, kind of yeah, yeah, absolutely deliberate sort of Shakespearean overtones. And there's a there's a portrait um, of a sort of nobleman with dark skin that Pushkin had in his apartment that scholars um, thought, well, this must be this must be Gannibal. And actually, the British writer Hugh Barnes <laughs> tracked this portrait down. It was hidden in the Pushkin Museum. It was in an attic. And he asked them to clean it. And when they cleaned it, it turned out that actually there was a portrait of a white man. So it wasn't uh, Gannibal at all. But in the Soviet Union, Gannibal even played a part. So it, the Soviet Union, obviously, in the Cold War, was very keen to present itself as uh, anti-racist compared to the racist a fraternal Americans. Ally. Exactly. Yeah. And in, in, as part of that, in 1976, they made a film called How Tsar Peter the Great Married Off His Moor. And... Um, Michael Vladimir Vlisotsky played Gannibal and he played him as a sort of, it's a sort of, it's a comedy. Um, but what slightly makes it unfunny now, I think, for, for modern viewers is that he's completely blacked up as Gannibal. So it's quite hard to watch. You haven't watched The Great, have you? Which is the, uh, I think, b- brilliant, brilliantly funny, dark, kind of faintly surreal uh, narrative of how Catherine becomes Sarina. And uh, I'm amazed that that Gannibal wasn't included in that because they he would have been a brilliant character. Why they they really sh- I don't know Mad. why they didn't put him in. Well, um, I'll tell you, he'd be very disappointed. Black American writers of the early 20th century, because this is the point at which to end. So you've got this Cameroonian bloke. He's we actually know so little about him. We know just these. This, the outline that I've given is probably as much as we know, to be honest. Um, we know that he was a slave. We know that he came to St. Petersburg. We know he had this tremendous military career and then an engineer, blah, 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 blah. But everything else is a bit of a mystery. But in the 20th century, he became an icon for some very unlikely people. He became an icon for the writers of the Harlem Renaissance in America. Did he? So, was um, that, was, they, did they, they know like about him, him through Pushkin or but through Pushkin? You see, they like, right. they love the idea that Pushkin, the great Russian writer, was at heart an African. So Langston Hughes says of Pushkin in the 1920s, uh, he was the first black writer to scale the mountain standing in the way of true Negro art in America. Paul Robeson talks a lot about Pushkin. And indeed, even today, um, there are critics who say that that book, The Moor of Peter the Great, Pushkin's book about his great-grandfather is, as one critic, American critic puts it, the first work of fiction in modern times by a black writer with a black hero. And the black writer, uh, she thinks, is, is Pushkin, and the black hero is Avram Petrovich Gannibal, who, as you very rightly said, Tom, probably the most famous Cameroonian to have become a Russian general. Well, thank you very much, Dominic. That was absolutely wonderful. Uh, what an extraordinary story. Uh, and I, I, I have to say, I am loving doing these because... You know, he we couldn't have done a whole episode on him, a kind of traditional episode, but just beautiful bite-sized subjects. So yeah, thanks I'd very never, much. Yeah, love that story. Uh, and we'll be back. Uh, we're back tomorrow with uh, with a couple more episodes. So see you then. Bye bye. Bye bye.
Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts.